Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday morning, and I have a lot of things to do, but uh, I'm going to try to do the Pasha now, so I have that off my head. I have, I have a yard site coming up all the week. I just finished something that I put together a direct over that. Plus the lectures. Anyway, it's not important. Uh, today's uh, podcast on the Pasha Shmos is being sponsored by the Pratskis, my good friends, the uh, parishioners. Uh, and Gary said this in, in, in honor of uh, his parents. Uh, that is to say, his mother has a uh, has a birthday this week, and his father has a birthday this week. So both parents are born the same uh, in Tevis, right? Uh, father birthday 21 Tevis, and the mother is 24 Tevis. I'm saying, is today 21 Tevis? Maybe it is. And it's also his father's bar mitzvah parsha. Well, that makes sense if it's his um, if it's birthday date. Uh, and then he said he's just asking if I would talk about what is without question the most obscure uh, story of Moses, and that is what happened to Moshe and Sipar at the inn, uh, which is a bummer. Uh, but I'll give it a shot. Um, I'll give it a shot. Now, we're turning our attention now to a, a very obscure and difficult part of Parsha Shmos. Uh, not the beginning, the regular stories, we know all that. But specifically, uh, this is around Shishi or something like that, where Moshe tells his father-in-law, I'm going to go back to Egypt. Right? And uh, and then Hashem gives him instructions, uh, what to say. And you run into Pharaoh... And tell him this, that, and the other. And then the incident where that uh, God encounters Moshe and wants to kill him. It's v- extremely obscure. It's possible to read it that God wants to kill the baby. And Sipora, as we all know, circumcised the baby. And the language is extremely difficult. Uh, I don't have this down 100%. Uh, there's no question in my mind there's got to be something in the juxtaposition of all this. If you look at Shishi... You'll see that it says that Moshe tells his father, I'm going to go back to Egypt. And Yisra says, Lech Shalom, which, which is a funny expression. It should be Lech B'Shalom, you know, but okay, Lech L'Shalom, go to peace. Not go in peace. Lech L'Shalom. That uh, <laughs> could mean a lot of things. And then, and then God says, go to Egypt. Because all the people who don't like you are dead. Which again is just interesting. I could go off on a different tension on that. Rabbi Fran Jr. wrote me a whole thing about the, the who is it, the Orsamech has a whole Rikas on this. Believe that alone. And uh, to focus on this. And then it says he put his wife and children on a chamor. I don't know why he's got to tell us that. And they went back to Egypt and he took the stick. Now, um, and God says, you're going to have the stick, and uh, you're going to have to do all these miracles. And don't worry, Paro will say no. 
So as I'm giving you a a a, a uh, previews of coming attractions God is doing to Moses. Now, um, the Bible, to my mind, is the, one of the more thoughtful of the commentators on this sort of thing because it, it doesn't quite 100% make sense. And he would say that Moshe says to Yisrael, I want to go back to Egypt, which sounds like a nut. You just escaped from there. And uh, you're a wanted criminal. And uh, anyway, the Jews betrayed you last time. Moshe ran, went away from Lashon Hara, as we know. And now you want to go back, right? And uh, Moshe does not say God commissioned me to liberate the Jews from Egypt. He just says, He went back to his father-in-law and he said, That's a little sticky, but that's not 100% honest. Moses said, I would like to go and visit my relatives to see if they're still alive. No, that's not the reason you're going to Egypt. You're going to go to Egypt to do the ten plagues and bust the Jews out of there. You know, so he didn't exactly tell the truth to his father-in-law. Who does? <laughs> and um, in that context, the Barbanel suggests that Yisrael must have said, Lech l'shalom, in other words, Hrumph. you know, yeah, I hope you go and you'll encounter peace, meaning you're going to a dangerous place. It's not a good idea going back. I think that's a very logical explanation. And then God sees that Moshe is freaked out from this because, you know, when he says, Lech l'shalom, it's like a Jew saying, I'm going to visit Syria. I'm going to visit Iran. Not a good idea, you know? So Hashem has to buck him up. And Hashem said, no, 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 don't listen to your father-in-law. Right? All those who are out to get you are dead. I, God, have arranged everything. You know, there was an attorney general that had a, had your case. And there was a police commissioner that was out, that you were on his list. And there were, you know, all these guards that had it against you. And there were people at court that didn't like you. They're all died. I, Hashem, would not have... I, don't worry, you know, I'm God, I'm the chess master. I wouldn't have called you at the burning bush to go to Egypt if things weren't in the right order. You know what I mean? In other words, if all the, the pieces weren't in place. I've arranged matters that this guy got a heart attack and that guy got cancer and the third one jumped in the lake and the fourth one fell off the Empire State Building. So don't worry. We're all dead, right? You have to go with Rashi that they got poor. They're all they're all dead, uh, and then, so encouraged by this, Moshe goes even with his wife and children, which can only mean, to my understanding, that because of God's uh, telling him this, that all those who uh, are against you are dead. Uh, so, you, in other words, as we would say today, you no longer exist in the files. You understand? You know, you know you're not on the wanted list anymore. It's a new regime. They don't know about you. It's not like now with the computers that everything is instantly recalled. This ancient world, you know, there's records, and then the, the guys in charge of the records died. Nobody knows you're there. And so Moshe was um, sufficiently self-confident. So he takes his wife and, and babies, and he goes back to Egypt. That can, that can only sound like, you know, Moshe felt, if God's telling me to do it, I'm moving back Mamish. And then... Hashem says it's not going to be so simple. And then here comes the interesting part. Now we're going to hear Bechor, Bechor, Bechor. The next couple of Sukkim, to be constant references to the firstborn. And I'm sure there's an interconnection with there. But it's very obscure to my mind. Very obscure. Uh, Rashi says something great. 
The first thing you tell Pharaoh is that Israel is my firstborn. And what does that mean? So Rashi says, it's a medrash, the Egyptians have all heard the story of, uh, what do you call it, Yaakov and Esau, how Yaakov stole the, the birthright. So really the firstborn was Esau. And from a, a, what do you call it, medical point of view, the first one that came out was Esau. And uh, Esau was there for the firstborn, and the blessings that the father gave were to Esau. I was given to Yaakov. That doesn't count. It was cheating. You understand? He deceived him. He lied. Hakol kol Yaakov. He died to Esau. Come on. You understand? Now, how would they know this? I can only surmise the Jews blabbed. You understand? When the Jews came to Egypt, it was in the context of uh, family squabbles. Uh, they had sold Joseph as a slave in Egypt. Joseph rose to be viceroy. He brought his brothers back in. I don't think that this was unknown. Knowing Jews as we do, this must have gotten out there. And people must have realized that, you know, there were quarrels in Yaakov's family. And taken back another generation or two, there were quarrels. And in, in, in when Yaakov was, was young, you know, when he had a twin brother, Esau. And I think it must have been notorious that Yaakov stole the um, birthright. And uh, and therefore the, the Jews are, um, you know, tainted. They come from a race of uh, of cheaters. And uh, maybe when Yaakov himself was alive, it wasn't like that. Like I mentioned last week, the presence of Jacob in Egypt itself, if the story is true that the famine stopped, so that, you see, was a holy man. But Yaakov arranged that he should be buried, like I mentioned last week, it stops over, out of Egypt. And so the Egyptians forgot about him. They forgot about Joseph. And all they knew, they got a bunch of money-grubbing Jews. Batimolehars or some, they're very Mosegashmus-oriented. And they claim that they're God's firstborn, but obviously not, because we enslaved them. And um, they're all telling on each other, just like they told them Moshe. And there you have it. Like I, I mentioned earlier years, you you have to separate, you have to know how to separate the different Chazals. You know what I'm saying? Can't, one, there's one way of learning the whole story that all the Jews were righteous. They didn't change their names and this and that and the other. There are other ways of saying no, they weren't righteous. It's the opposite. Matter of fact, it says that they all ceased circumcision. It's a famous matter at the beginning of uh, Shmos. When Yosef died, they stopped circumcises. Nia Kimitzriam. We want to be like the Egyptians. Well, that's a, a radical assimilationist move. And um, don't tell me, well, they stopped circumcision, but they didn't change their names. And that makes sense, right? So there's schools of thought in Chazal that everything is peachy keen. And then there's schools of thought in Chazal and elsewhere, like in the Book of Yecheskel, which is usually bad in Egypt. That's it. As we use the expression today, Memte Shari Tuma. You know? So, therefore, it's just very interesting when you meet Parab, you want to tell him like this, Actually, Israel is my firstborn. Yaakov did not steal the uh, the uh, Bechorah. Uh, I got arranged these matters. And you, Pharaoh, are about to see this through the ten plagues that I'm going to do. Right? You're going to be amazed. Because these people you think are cheaters, um, I'm going to do ten plagues and bust Egypt and force you to let them go. Let, me, let them go. And since you're not going to let him go, I'll kill you first one. Now, what's the connection with saying Bnei Bechor Yisrael? It seems to me obvious. In other words, 
You Egyptians deny that Jews are special. Uh, they're not the Bechor. I'm telling you they are Bechor. And because you denied that we're the Bechor, you're going to do me to Kenegami. You, you're going to lose your Bechor. Right? Um, and you're going to know what it's like uh, to deny uh, you know, what's there. Notice, you say we are not the Bechors. You're not going to have a Bechor like that. Okay, so far so good. It's a little obscure, but that works. And then on the way in the hotel, why do they got to tell us it was in the hotel? Now we come to the psukim that cannot be translated. They cannot be translated successfully. I can translate them and so can you. But you know what I mean? Not successfully. Hashem was pogeshim. He encountered him. What's a pigisha? It's a very funny expression. Why does it say like this? Vayera, I love Hashem. You know? Or something like this. Or Vayom Hashem, I love. Or Vayichar Hashem, I love. Something like that. It's unusual, right? Vayif Gesheu Hashem. God encountered him. And by the way, it's not Elohim, it's Yudke Vavke. Vayif Gesheu Hashem, Vayivakish Hamiso. He wanted to kill him. What does that mean? If Hashem wants to kill you, he kills you. <laughs> you know? By Hashem, you don't use the word Vayivakish. <laughs> he, he, he said, yeah, you know what I mean? If he wants to do it, he does it. Uh, so that's, that is obscure number one. And then, Vatikach Tsipur What does Tsipur got to do with anything? She took a knife, a, a, a sharp stone. She circumcised the baby. What does that got to do? Where did you see anything about circumcision in the story? You know what I mean? Vataka Baragrov, and she threw it at his feet. That's not true. Vataga is an interesting expression. I tell you, the language is very obscure. Vataga means she made it touch. Right? Vatiga is she touched? Vataga is what's called hifil in causative. Vataga raglov, she made it touch to his regal, to his, his feet. Let's say it means Moshe's feet. It could mean a baby's feet. You know, it could be the, the angel's feet. If you learned there was an angel, it's not clear. I mean, there are different sources that say all those three. Batomer ki chasan domim atoli. What does that mean? You're a chasan domim, a chasan, a son-in-law, or a bridegroom? Because chasan could be either one. Listen, Moshe was no bridegroom. <laughs> They're married already. This is the second kid. Uh, well, may, some say it's Gershon, some say it's Eliezer. But I mean, even if it's the first one, they've been married for a year. Chasan domim, a chasan of bloods, not chasan dom. Chasan domim atoli, for from Yemenu, and then let go. Ozamra, chasan domim lamulos. I repeat, this is extremely obscure. The, the, the Hebrew cannot be translated. What's the translation of chasan domim lamulos? A chasan of bloods, la mulos, for circumcised people? Is that what it means? I mean, it, it, it makes no sense, okay? At least to me. Now, um, which is which is remarkable. Now, this one he want me to take a whack at Gary. <coughs> the language I keep coming back very hard to understand. Uh, in classic formulations, this I know everybody knows from Rashi from Gemara and everywhere else. They say, well, it must be because Moshe was Nisasel on the on the Milo. Therefore, Hashem wanted to kill him. Uh, he should have circumcised the kid. Some will go so far as to say like this. It was the eighth day, um, and he came to the hotel and he came alone, you know, he didn't he didn't do the bris right away. Really? 
Wait a minute, let's get this straight. The good Lord just spent a lot of time and effort investing in this guy Moses. He summoned him at the burning bush. He argued with him for seven days, according to Chazal. I want you, I want you, I want you. But Moshe keeps saying, get somebody else. He put a lot of time and effort into him. He just told him, don't worry, you're going to come to Egypt and do all these miracles and tell Pyro so-and-so. And then you're going to kill him? And you're going to kill him for really what's a minor infraction? Right? Moshe didn't worship an idol. It says, I'm going with the Chazal. He, see, he came to the hotel, and let's say, for example, he arrived at the hotel, uh, I don't know, uh, it's hard to understand. Let's say he arrived at, I mean, even there, it, it's not easy to understand. When did they arrive at the hotel? They arrive at the hotel usually at evening. I mean, that's what you do when you go on the road, right? So when it comes dark, you arrive at the hotel. And the bris isn't at night, it's the next morning. So you have to read it somehow like this. He got up in the morning, and he's going to go on the road, and before he does the bridge, he went to pay the bill. Something along those lines. Oh, why'd you do that? You should do the meal first, instead of paying the bill. Because of that, Amalek wanted to kill him. Rashi said they swallowed him up. That doesn't sound right. You understand? In other words, so he was wrong. Hashem should have said like this, you know you're doing wrong. Moshe's brand new at this. He didn't want the job. You know, he didn't get somebody else. God said, no, I'm going to send you Aaron, and he does. You know, shortly after this, he encounters Aaron, right? And um, uh, and it was all going to be a bruchel about told because he was going to kill him because he spent an extra, he paid the bill before he, he did the bris. Remember, because I'll say, like, according to those who hold it, Iskim Malam, Moshe was going to do the bris. He just waited a little bit. Now, I know you can say, you know, with a tzaddik is a medaktik achuta syrup. I get that. But, and some write that way. But then what happened to your old plan to liberate the Jews out of Egypt? It really doesn't work with the whole Parsha. The whole Parsha goes that Moses was a chosen person. Back there, the, 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 the um, I don't know if you know how to read this. Back there, the people were crying out. I've said this many times. If you look back in, um, where is it? Earlier in the Parsha, where it says, that the Jews were um, screaming and crying, okay? And, uh, you know, when, when Paro died, uh, where is it over here? This is in Perik Gimel, uh, Perik Beis, rather. He said, Right? Without going through my favorite Chidah, and saying each time it says Elkim, it's a, it's deducting 86 um, years off the 430 years. Just push it. The Jewish people are crying. They say, we can't take it anymore. And it says, Batal Shabbosam Elho Elhim And their philos hit the jackpot. Batal Shabbosam Elho Elhim You know, you daven. God hears everything you're saying. But sometimes God answers yes, sometimes God answers no. Oh, a, a poetic way of saying that is, do your prayers reach the Kisah Kavit, or something like that. Understand this well. Whenever you pray, if you believe in God, <laughs> it's not like He doesn't hear you. It's just a question whether he, whether He chooses, for His reasons, to say yes or no. So, the language of is a nice way, a, a lofty and poetic way of saying the God said yes. Vayishmael Kimis Nakosam, Vayiskrael Kimis Briso Sabrim Yitzvah Yaakov. 
Those are all, right? So all these are expressions that Hashem said, okay, I'm going to listen to your prayers. You've hit rock bottom. The suffering has gone far enough. And I'm going to get you somebody to help. And uh, not long after this incident, with the prayers of the slaves, not long after this, Moshe shows up in Egypt. I want you to understand that. In other words, the, a pro, very shortly after this praying session, with the death of Pharaoh, the man Moses will be in Egypt and start the ball rolling. And within a fairly short time, there won't be slavery anymore. It'll take a year for them to leave Egypt, but the slavery will be radically reduced. As soon as you get done with Svardaya and all that, the economy goes to a halt. And then, you know, the the it's like Corona. You know, everybody stay home. If, if the business has crashed, you're staying home. And that's what they say. The Chazal say that the slavery formally stopped. I think it was Yom Kippur, if I read it, such a tradition. But if you use your mind a little bit, uh, you understand, once you have done, Svardaya, Kina, Marv, Dever, that kind of business, ain't no economy. If you're a slave, for example... They work in the fields, and all of a sudden the transportation crashed because the animals are dead, for example, and there's no cars. There's no work for you to do, you know, because you're not going to transport anywhere. Anyway, so my point is, right after they um, finished this prayer, this heartfelt, touching prayer, uh, Moses will show up. But in terms of immediacy, this is the wonderful part about the story. In terms of immediately, he said, The God saw how bad the Jews are, and said, I'm going to do something about it. And like the next minute or so, after that tefillah, although the slaves don't know this, uh, God arranges the burning bush incident. The next pasuk is, And so, you know, we still use the uh, Christian chapters. So, the Pasuk I said before is the end of chapter 2. That's Perak based Pasuk And then starts Perak Gimel. Like it's a different thing. But I think everybody knows those are just artificial um, chapter headings. In reality, um, is one continuous narrative. And that makes the story even better. The Jewish people cried out, God knew, and a second later, elsewhere, they don't see it, in a far off land called Midyang, God arranges a bush to go on fire and this shepherd named Moshe to encounter it. So basically, he heard the prayer and he started going to work right away, you know, to to to, to get the ball rolling to, to, to end the slavery. Now, Moshe gummed it up a little bit by not wanting to be the person that did it. And Hashem has to argue with him for days and days and days. And find, and Moshe keeps saying, get somebody else. I'm not the right person for a hundred reasons. And Hashem says, I want you, I want you, I want you. He never tells him why he wants him. But I want you. And now you're going to tell me that he's on his way to Egypt. After God says, go, Mesu because he stopped on the road, he's going to die. And then what happens to the whole plan? Right? Then what happens to the whole unfolding of the story that God was answering their prayers? It ain't so... Uh, it, that's why it doesn't make any sense to me. That's all I can tell you. Right? To do the regular way, 
the way most uh, um, Farshim understand it, that Hashem was going to kill him because of, there was lax in some way or another on the bris milah, doesn't work in my mind. Now, I could be wrong. I'm only telling what I think. You know, I don't claim to know everything. I'm just telling you that it never sits well with my kishkas. Um, so what's going on? What's going on? Let me say, before I proceed, since I mentioned the Pasuk, B'ni B'nechor Yisrael, it's a very nice Ibn Ezra. You take a look at it. Now, I don't I don't personally don't think that's the Pshat, but it's a great vort. And the Ibn Ezra says, B'ni B'chor Yisrael means, uh, it's very lofty. You're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him, I'm coming here to proclaim monotheism. And you're about to see monotheism in action. Because this one single force is going to wipe out the gods of Egypt and the whole country and all the rest of it. B'ni B'chor Yisrael. Israel is the first one to recognize one God. He's a Bechor, but he's going to have brothers. Eventually, all the other nations of the world will follow. And so he was really giving uh, Pharaoh a lofty message. Okay? That's like a very interesting type of shot. You understand? You look at the... Uh, as I said before, it's even Ezra over here, uh, where he says... Where is it? Uh, this is the first of the ones to, to, to worship Hashem. But the others will follow. Okay? The others will follow. Now, um, so notice one day you, Pharaoh, in Egypt, this country which believes in a thousand gods, one day will believe in one God. Egypt today, for example, I don't like Egypt, but you know, they believe in one God. Right? Very anti-Semitic. So, you know, uh, that's just interesting. All right, now, putting that aside. So what's with this story? I thought about it. I looked around. And the best interpretation in my mind, it makes sense to me, in light of the problems I had that I just mentioned, is that Barbara Noah, who says something very interesting, and at least thought-provoking, and it's a different way of reading it. Uh, he says, he suggests the following. Um, if you ever read um, books like uh, Derek Hashem and others, they talk about the phenomenon of prophecy. Uh, it, 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 what, it, it's not a push of the thing. Um, people work to get the, the Madrig of Nebua. The Rambam, for example, very famously says in the Mornevuchim that there are three uh, opinions about prophecy. I think in the third part of Mordevuchim. The dumbbells, the Greek philosophers, and the Jews. The dumbbells believe that any idiot, no matter what he is, he or she, if God wishes to speak to them, they will. You know, you could be anything. Because uh, Hayat Hashem Tixar, you know, you can do whatever you want. And so a person can have no preparation whatsoever. And, f- and for God's good reason, he will entrust this person with a Nebuch. Uh Ramos says, ridiculous. Uh, then he said the Greek philosophers say that Nevua is um, a madrega that can be reached, but only after working at it. So to use English language, you'd have to get one of these Arya Kaplan type books, practice meditation. Uh, I'm serious. Uh, you know, train your mind to concentrate on certain things to the exclusion of others, and then eventually turn that power of concentration on Shemos Hashem of various sorts, and things like that, certain types of music, or whatever it is, and uh, 
once you do this mind control business, you can pot, you can reach Nabuah. So basically, the Greek philosophers, the Ramam says, say that it's possible to get a higher experience. Now, Greek philosophers didn't believe in God, as we understand the term. So it's more like ESP type thing. But you can reach your, you know, get a higher consciousness and see things that they can't see. That would be Nabuah. And the Jews, the Torah, says, agrees that you ain't getting Nabuah without working at it and going through a whole series of um, training exercises and things like that. But um, even if you do everything you're supposed to do, you may not get it because God may choose for whatever reason not to do it. We believe in a God who's a person, if I can use that terminology, you know, with with a will, even though God doesn't really have a will, but you know what I mean. And consequent, and and the famous example is Baruch ben Nariah, the Rebbe of Ezra, the, t- the student, the disciple of Yirmiyahu, the prophet Jeremiah, who was a big person, obviously, if he's the Rebbe of Ezra, you know, and um, he did everything he's supposed to do to get Nevoah, and in a certain place in the book of Yirmiyahu, Hashem tells Yirmiyahu, you can tell Baruch that I'm not speaking to him, I'm not sending him Nevoah, it's not a concern on his part, but I have reasons not to do so. And, you know, Bark was all broken as a result of this and so on and so forth. The point I want to get across is that you don't get Nabuah without uh, working at it and building yourself up. So it's like going to medical school. Nobody can become a doctor just like, you know, wake up in the morning and be a doctor. Mira Giza, if you go through and you do all the work, all those years, you'll come out a doctor. Except in this place, you have the idea Hashem has to want to, 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 uh, want it to work. Fine. Now, then you go... To Derech Hashem with Ramchal, who has these long passages on what it's like to be Nebuah. The Ramchal himself had a shtick on Nebuah, you know. So, uh, and he talks about the fact, again, that's a very painful experience if you're not ready for it. You feel like you're being twisted out. You get hit like a huge whammy. So imagine a person, I mean, I'm just using this as a general approximation, obviously. Suppose a person would get hit with a powerful, uh, I don't know, spaz, you know, uh, a, a very painful experience. I'm I'm tempted to use the word COVID, you know, people get it in a terrible way, God forbid. You know, things like this. That's what Nevoah is, unless you're prepared for it. Right? And when you, and even if you're prepared for it, the first time you get it, the second time you get it is gonna be an extremely painful experience until you get used to it and go with the flow. But this requires, I see, years of training with a already a bona fide Navi. These are called the Benay Navium. And uh he describes the type of exercise you have to do over there, the meditation, the shameless Hashem, the, uh, it's like, not to be funny, go read the Ari Kaplan book on, on uh, Kabul and meditation, you know, where he, he just gives a, a, a set of examples from Jewish history, it's part of history people don't know so well. You know, now, Yehudim, Kabbalah, all that kind of business. Okay, let it be. Um, now, I've always noticed doesn't have to be that way it's just that's the way it is most of the time what I mean by that is Shmuel Anavi was a little kid when he got the Nebo that's a famous story beginning of Shmuel on the other hand and it doesn't seem like it was a painful business at all but Shmuel wasn't a normal person he had a very weird life very unusual upbringing the mother gave him when he's weaned to the Mishkan and he and he grew up totally in the Mishkan just with Ailey and you know he had no friends as we'd say today and he and he was fine with it, and so he grew up like we say, Ola Tamima, you know, not a regular person. So when he gets in the pool, he's already like, you might say, organic training to get it. But most people, 
get it as a powerful and overwhelming experience until you learn to go with the flow. What about Moshe? He wasn't into no R.E. Kaplan books. Moses had been a prince in Egypt, a general, and all that kind of stuff. Now he's 80 years old. He ran away at a second life in Midian. There's no indication that he was working on Navua, you know. Um, as far as we can say, he's just trying to live a life, you know, post-Egypt. And uh, he's a shepherd. And the the story of the burning bush was a surprise to him. He went after a sheep, and there he saw Asura Noveris, Amira Godolzem, Adul Yivres. He didn't know what's going on. And therefore, God introduced him against his will, might say, to, to Nebuah. They even say the Chazal that when Hashem spoke to him, he spoke to him with the voice of Amram, so Moshe Hashem freak out, sound like his father. So he had an unusual path to prophecy. And you and I know that as time went on, Moshe rose to the highest heights. By the time his career is finished, he reached the level of Nebuah that nobody else did. It's one of the 13 principles of faith of Maimonides, right? Nebuah Moshe that's the popular way of phrasing it. Supremacy to prophecy of Moses. Fine. But that's not what he was at the beginning. right? It's something to build up over years. The Moshe at the burning bush is not the Moshe at Harsinai. And the Moshe at Harsinai is not the highest Madrig either. At least in my mind, the highest Madrig is later on when he gets the uh, Jews off from the golden calf and he said, Harini knows Kodech and all that. That's when he reaches the highest heights. And maybe even not even that. So the story of Moshe is the story of evolution education in, in high Madregas. By the time he's finished, he's in the highest Madrega. Okay, fine. Now, all this is by way of saying that Moshe has just uh, met God at the burning bush. They had a seven-day conversation, according to Chazal. So... That's just interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, Hashem must have really lowered the level of Nebuah to conduct a seven-day uh, debate. A quarrel, even. A quarrel. Because, you know, Hashem saw that he's not going, and he got angry at him, you know, and he said, I want you, I want you, I want you. And God bends over backwards. He said, I'll get your brother Aaron, you know, we'll do, I want you, I want you. So he strongly recruited him, as we would say today. Strongly recruited him. Fine. And as I said before, uh, after he tells uh, in, in Parashishi, because that's what I'm concentrating on today in today's podcast, after he tells his follow I'm going back to Egypt, Hashem says to Moshe, So it turns out he had another uh, vision or prophecy telling him, you know, what I just said before. You can go back to Egypt and take your stick and and tell Paro this, that, and the other. Okay, fine. So in other words, he's getting more into Nevoah. But he wasn't Moshe yet. He's just starting. Okay? He hasn't done the Ten Plagues, all the rest of it. He's just starting. Now, the Barbanel suggests, having had this experience, they went on the road and stopped in the hotel. And Moshe is taking care of the hotel stuff. And he got hit with a nevuah, and he wasn't ready for it. Right? It's not like the burning bush where he was, the whole experience was one in which that made him ready. Take your shoes off your feet. You're in a holy place, as God says. You know, there's some kind of getting ready for it. And even there he turned away from the, to look. And here, by Hashem, nevuah encounters him. 
to my mind, that's a very nice reading of the word Vayivkeshehu Hashem. Not that an angel came in and 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 went to kill him. Vayivakesh Hamisob doesn't mean that God is out to kill him, but the overwhelming uh, force of the prophetic experience when you're not ready for it sought to kill him. Notice that 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 was endangering his life. So in other words, he got this uh, new Ruch Hakodesh business at a heavy level, and he wasn't ready for it. I'll, I'll give you the language. This is the Tamid. That now that he's on the way to Egypt, he's getting a heavy level of uh, of Ruch Hakodesh. And that means that you, Moshe, are no longer going to have a normal life. You're going to be at the beck and call and of God, and therefore you're going to always have to be with a certain hisbodidus, you're going to have to live of, of heavy concentration on your divine mission. So you're not going to have time to read a, a book. You're not going to be able to go to ball game. Not going to have time to shoot the ball in the back of Shoal, nothing like that. You always got to be in in in, in a certain madrega. That's hard. I mean, let's put it this way: Moshe has a cruel, tough and cruel life. Of if if you define the necessity of constantly being bespotedish and 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 when concentrated machshava, but that's the story life of Moshe, as we all know. It was the fate of Moses to be. You know, stuck in this situation. When he came to the hotel and was working on, you know, the hotel stuff, he wasn't um, misbodied, you understand? Uh, and, and here we get kind of Hasidic and uh, Maimonidean and uh, what do you call it? Lutzato. It's a big trick to do the following. If I put you in a cave and I say, go be misboated and think of Hashem and all the rest of it, that could be done. But it's very hard to um, uh, be basic in, you know, gosh, me stick to everyday type things at the same time, sort of double task and keep your mind in the loftiest places. This is a well known issue. The Rambam and Mornabuchim being a rationalist, is a very eloquent passage in a certain place where he says that nobody can do both. Uh, you and I, for example, the Ram would say, you work for a living. Okay. While you're working for a living, you got to concentrate on your job. You can't be misboded and think of Hashem and Dvekas in the mental sense, but the Ram says, but there are many moments in the day when you can. He talks about before you go to sleep, Everybody can, when I say everybody, most people could set aside a certain time. So imagine you just go into a room, lock yourself in, and think about Hashem. Ten minutes, an hour a day. But the other part, not. So let's say you're a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, you're this, that, and the other, whatever, you know, your job is. Government employee. When you're on the job, you got to worry about that. Uh, we can't expect to have vacants at that time. But the, the test will be, what do you do? On your free moments, if every free moment you use for Dvekas, then you're doing the right thing. That's what the Ramam says. And he talks about Moshe Rabbeinu, he's saying when, that's why he was 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. That was an extraordinary experience. Right? That was not typical. God enabled him to spend 40 days, 40 nights, getting ready for the Torah, 
total Hisbodas in a cloud on top of Har Sinai. That was an unusual situation. Uh, but as they say, ordinarily not. The Vasil um, Sharm, who's a mystic, has a whole famous chapter of Kedusha where he says that it can happen. Although it's not humanly possible, if you put forth your effort, Hashem will make it happen. Then the Hasidim say the same thing. Which means that I can double task. I'm working a job and I'm also thinking about Hashem. I'm you know, talking to you, necessary things. I'm talking to my wife, my employer, my this, that, and the other. At the same time, I'm concentrating totally on Hashem. And he says, it's a gift from God. You have to put in your Hishtadalus and Hashem will give you the extra part like a grace. You understand? It's interesting. Take a look at the chapter in Kedusha in the Mesil Sharp. Let it be. So, um, here's Moshe and the Barbanel suggesting that he went to the hotel. He wasn't a double task. He like the Rambam, like Maimonides. And, uh, okay, but he's not a regular guy. And what happened was, Kishabam Mamolab in the Sasik Vesilino, below his bodade, Kishacholab Shefa, Mitzel Bilti Muchel Levuab. Moshe got hit with a heavy dose of Ruchnius, of Nevua, and he wasn't ready for it. That's the meaning of It wasn't God Almighty that encountered him like I encounter you, you know, in Semma Market or something like that. Right? But rather, He wasn't ready. And because he wasn't ready, the experience of that was very painful and almost killed him. As the Barbanel says, because uh, uh, he wasn't ready at that moment, if he's hit with the Nevuah, he got a very painful experience, and that's why he vacationed Miso. God was now to kill him, like I told you before. God invested a lot of time an effort that this guy Moshe should go to Egypt. El Shapaka Shashefa Elyon built him Muchad. Binistakim Yegila Shari Mavis. So that's what uh, uh, he says. That makes more sense to me. But if Keshew Hashem means he got hit with a with a Ruach HaKodesh uh, uh, business, a Nabua thing, and because he's getting used to a life uh, which is radically different than what he's had until now. It's going to be, as I said before, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to get a continual Nabua. He's going to have to be there. 24-7, that's going to have to completely reorient how he lives his life. This is the part we don't usually think of. Uh, although we all know that Tzipar later on in, uh, in Bamibra is complaining about this. And um, uh, it's it, it, So what does she do? Uh, so again, it's not 100% clear over here. But she goes and circumcises the child who's supposed to be circumcised. And she throws it at his feet. The way I understand is like this. When she shechted, when she, shechted, when she uh, mauled the kid, uh, that should, that was like uh, shaking somebody out of a trance. You know, When she threw it at his feet, she says, Chasan Domim Atoli, you're a bloody chasan. She's saying like this, I had to do this and save your life by getting you out of this Ruch business and bringing you down to earth. That somehow or other, the performance of Mila and the throwing of the Arla at his feet, uh, shook Moshe out of a trance, out of, you know, out of this uh, painful experience, and saved his life. 
I saved his life. And they said, Vayir Fimenu would then mean that this um, heavy whammy that he was hit with departed from him. He he came back to normal. Uh, the Ramchal really describes all this as something along the lines of an epileptic fit, if you take a look at it. Now, it's not epilepsy at all, but I'm just saying it has those symptoms. And we do find in the book of Shmuel, a number of times, is what I call the incident at Noyos. At one point, um, King Saul is chasing after uh, David when they kill him, and um, Sh- David runs to uh, Shmuel, who's conducting one of these uh, Novian training sessions. I'm serious. And it said they're all prophesying, which means they're all spazzing. They're out of control because they're, you know, they're running back and forth. The Ramchal says this. And when Saul reaches there, the atmosphere is so radioactive, he gets hit with it, and he tears his own clothes off like in a, in a fit and lies there naked. It's in the, it's in the book of Shemulal, right, all day long. Uh, because the, the experience is very powerful and very painful. Here we find Moshe Ben himself, the greatest of the Nobis, gets hit with this and almost knocked him out. Uh, and the wife saved him uh, by performing the bris. I don't, this is, is my mind, it makes the most sense. I don't exactly understand why it was a bris that had to do so, right? Uh, I could guess. And my guess would be that um, the number one uh, problem that Jews had was they had stopped uh, circumcising Egypt. I told you before, the matter says that when Yosef died, he feared bris milah. So um, they all were no, you know, they stopped performing bris milah. Now uh, there weren't many mitzvahs at that time, but bris milah was the biggest because the marker whether you consider yourself separate or not. The Jews were not doing that. This is no reason why they were suffering the slavery in Egypt. The Medrash says the following language. I remember this by heart. That they said, "Hey, fair bris milah amru Let's be like the Egyptians, and. And that point, God, to frustrate this plan to assimilate and become part of Egypt, he, he started anti-Semitism in Egypt, which hadn't existed beforehand. So in other words, the big cause, if you want to look at it like that, of uh, of the slavery is the lack of brismila. Moshe was not circumcised, correct? They say he was Nolan Mole. So Moshe never had a bris, uh, and now his kids aren't going to have a bris, or at least they didn't have one yet. So I'm just surmising that when she performs the bris, it somehow or other mystically, you know, touches his consciousness and shakes him out of his trance. I think, right? At least that's an attempt to try to make sense of what's a weird business over here, and that's why she says chasan damim lamulos. I think there's more to it than this, but the Mahalach of the Barbanel is the one that suggests itself to me as as at least pointing in the, the direction. I'm not sure he goes all the way to work this totally through, and exactly Hassan Domila Mulos, but I think um, it helps us have a better uh, take on what still remains a very obscure passage. That's my best shot of it this year, and with that I wish you a good shot. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at 
www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.